Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the will to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and to set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he hath put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your great love for us and in the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, for us, that he might taste death for every one of us. We pray right now, Lord, for that our pastor, that he may speak to us through your word to encourage our hearts to draw us close to yourself, that you would remove distractions far from us, and that you may be glorified in all we do this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the sermon this morning is, is a good one for you guys who take notes, because there's only, only one sentence. The sermon is one sentence. It's a one-sentence one sermon. It's got two parts in it. The first part of our sentence this morning, we don't see how Psalm 8 can possibly be true. The second part, until we see Jesus. That's our, that's our one sentence this morning. So if you're you're a note taker, you can do it now and then just be done. We don't see how Psalm 8 can possibly be true until we see Jesus. That's our two-part sentence. It's our two-part sermon. We don't see how Psalm 8 can possibly be true until we see Jesus. Let's look at that two-part sentence together. Part 1, we don't see how Psalm 8 can possibly be true. So the author of Hebrews is continuing on with his, with his argument, with his sermon, with his letter. The author of Hebrews is trying to prove that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than, just fill in the blank, Jesus is greater. He started with, um, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's, he's seeking to prove that Jesus is the only way to be saved. That Jesus is our only hope in life and death. Uh, that his gospel is greater than even the word that the angels brought to Moses. So, so Jesus' gospel is greater even than the Old Testament. That Jesus is the only one where, wherein we can find salvation. Jesus is the only one we must trust and worship and follow. And we must never drift away from Him. The, the point of last week's verses, never ever drift away from Jesus. For if you drift away from Him, if you get distracted away from church and from the Word and from prayer and from loving Jesus, if you get drifted, if you get distracted away, if you drift away, you are, you are giving evidence that you never truly believed. So never ever drift away. Jesus is your only hope in life and death. Hold fast to Him. You have nowhere else to go. So in today's verses, 
the author of Hebrews is continuing this. But what he's going to do today is odd. It's odd. Because he's going to, he's going to use Psalm 8 to prove his point. To prove that Jesus is greater. To prove that Jesus is the only one that we can possibly hope in. Psalm 8 is an odd strategy. Because Psalm 8 is bonkers. The first four verses are fine. But after you get to verse 5, the thing, it's hard, it's hard to believe. Okay? It's hard for us to take Psalm 8 seriously after about the first four verses. Let me read the 8th Psalm to you. Starts out great. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy, the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? First four verses, yeah, we get it. The, the glory of God in the, in the heavens. The, the glory of God in creation. It is astounding. My son Pete and I drove to church this morning. And the, and the uh, sunrise, the sky this morning, was beautiful. It was beautiful. And, and we looked at the clouds and all that. And, and Pete says... Do you know that each of those clouds weighs about the same as 75 elephants because of all the water that's in there? And, and God created those with just his mouth? I was like, well, I didn't know the 75 elephants thing. That's cool. Um, I'm not smarter than a fourth grader. Uh, <laughs> but I did know God created them with his mouth. Pretty cool. The majesty of the Lord on display. But then, he says in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yes, yeah. When we look at the, when we look at creation, we're like, why in the world would that majestic God give a second thought to us? But then, verse five, we don't know what to do with this because then it says, "Yet you have crowned mankind; you have crowned, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands." You know, and you have, <laughs> you have put all things under his feet. These humans, you've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verses 5 through 8 are tough to believe. Mankind has been crowned with glory and honor. Mankind has dominion over the works of God's hands. All of creation... God has put all things under humanity's feet. In other words, we are the kings and queens of creation? No. That doesn't seem... You look around, that doesn't seem true. You just think about your own life. That doesn't feel true. It doesn't feel true. I can't even get my dog to do what what I'm supposed to... Like, you can't even... We're not kings and queens of anything. We have to get shock collars to get puppies to do what we want them to do. What is David talking about? Especially David, because by the time David wrote this, it's pretty obvious that this is just not true. In the beginning, it started out good, right? When this promise was first given in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it was, it was a lot more believable when we were first starting out. 
Genesis 1, 26-28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. Let this man, who we have made in our image, have dominion over the earth, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Things started out so good. Things started out so good. Mankind was destined to rule the earth. We were going to be kings and queens. We were never going to die. It was going to be awesome. But by the time David writes Psalm 8, it really seems like we should stop taking that promise seriously, right? Doesn't it seem like by the time, by the time we get all the way to the life of David, we get that far in the history of the world, it's time to kind of ditch this and just hope for the best? This is kind of like rooting for the Detroit Lions, I know, I think I mentioned football last week, and so this makes two weeks in a row, and I know there are many of you who do not like football, don't care at all, but I like this illustration, so I'm going to use it. And then I promise not to talk about football um, until the next time I do. Okay, so uh, after, after she died, everybody was talking about Queen Elizabeth II, right? People who had never mentioned her name out loud before suddenly have all kinds of opinions about her and just all kinds of things to sh- share, and they were shedding tears. I'm like, you didn't know she existed, uh, but now you're, what is going on? Anyhow, which is fine, but what, what people talked about, and the historian in me loves this, I was fascinated um, when, she, when she passed away, um, and I started and I started looking at just how long she reigned. She was the longest reigning British monarch ever. She reigned for 70 years. 70 years. People doing all kinds of fun things. Like, we had 14 United States presidents while Queen Elizabeth II was queen. Starting back with Truman. Remember him? Uh, the good old days. And so, I mean, she saw Truman all the way through to whoever it is that's president right now. And so, we... Um, we <laughs> but I didn't care about that. I don't care about that. What I wanted to know, I did my own research... I jumped on Wikipedia, did my own research. I wanted to know, in those 70 years, how many playoff games did the Detroit Lions win? Six. And if you don't know anything about football, let me just tell you, six is not a good number. 70 years, six playoff wins. And yet, and yet, every year, there's Detroit Lions fans who say, this is our year. This is our year. This is our year. Hey, Queen Elizabeth's gone. Maybe, maybe she was holding us back. This is our year. I, that, if that joke was in poor taste, I'm really sorry. I feel like I, feel like I want that one back. Uh, anyhow, it's too late. It's out there. It's been said. Um, but, but by the time you get to halfway through the season, all right? So, so today, yes, the Lions could still make the playoffs. They could still win the Super Bowl. This could be our year. In six or seven weeks, we are going to be mathematically eliminated from anything. All right? We are going to have a a losing record. We are going to be the the team that nobody even is aware of. And we're going to just say, well, maybe next year. By the time David is writing Psalm 8, 
We, he should be to the point where he's saying, yeah, it sounded really good. It was awesome. We had hopes and dreams. Remember the beginning of the season back in Genesis 1? We, we were thinking, this, this is going to... No. It's obvious the wheels have completely fallen off. And, and, and it's kind of like the, he, the, the, author, the author of Hebrews kind of knows that. It's kind of like he knows we're going to think that. Because look at, look at what he says. Our, our verse is starting in verse 5. Okay, so he's going he's gonna to quote Psalm 8. He's going to quote the goofy part of Psalm 8. He's going to quote the most, the, the, the most unbelievable part of Psalm 8. He says, For it, is, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, low, low, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. When, we, when, when the author says everything, he meant everything. And then, understatement of the year, the author of Hebrews says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. <laughs> if you look around, you don't actually see this in real life. Because we don't see it. What do you mean there's nothing outside man's control? What do you mean everything in creation is under our feet? That's not true at all. And we know why, of course. If you've done any church, you know, if you've been to church, um, you know, at least a few times, um, if it was a church that mentioned sin, then you know what the problem here is. Things started out great in Genesis 1, but then you turn to Genesis 3, and you have the sin of Adam. And then you have the sinful nature that was passed down to each of us, his descendants. So you have Adam's sin, and then you have, you have all of us, his, his, his great, 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 great grandchildren, and we are, we are sinning by nature, and we are sinning in our will, and we are over and over, starting with Adam, all the way through the rest of us, we are proving that we are not content to be created in the image of God, serving as his vice regents. We're not, we're not content with the authority that he's given us, the responsibility he's given us. We're not content with what he has said. We don't want to simply be kings and queens over creation. We want to be kings and queens over God as well. We want more, th- we want more than just to be made in the image of God. We want to be God. And because of our pride and our greed and our lust, we have ruined everything. And now we're not the kings and queens of anything. Now you see flashes of brilliance. You see uh, potential. It's kind of like it's kind of like you know halfway through the season where you see the Lions you know score a touchdown and you're like hey I think there's there's a football team in there somewhere hidden in all of the Detroit Lionsness you see flashes of brilliance we as humans can be geniuses we can be innovative we can be brilliant take for take for example. There's many, there's many examples I could give, but, but take, for instance, the Internet. Internet technology is astounding. It's, it's amazing. It's brilliant. And it should help us, shouldn't it? It should help us subdue the earth. It should help us to get more control of our lives. It should help us to be efficient and effective. It should help us. But what do we do with it? You do a little research, and you find out what the Internet is mostly used for. It does help us to be efficient, but it helps us to be simply more efficient in how we buy a whole bunch of stuff in order to impress people we don't know. 
It helps us to be more efficient in the way we spew hate at people we don't know. It helps us to be more efficient in the way we look at the nakedness of people we don't know. We don't master creation because we can't master ourselves. We are dead in our sins. We are subject to our own sin. You look around, humanity doesn't have dominion over anything. Humanity isn't ruling and reigning over anything, not even our own, and maybe even especially not even our own sinful hearts. So what is the author of Hebrews talking about? Seems like using Psalm 8 as the main support for your argument, for your essay, feels a little silly. Because we look around and we don't know how it can possibly be true. So that's the first part of our sermon. Thankfully, this is not a one-point sermon, or else it would be a little depressing. First part of our sermon, we don't see how Psalm 8 can possibly be true. Thankfully, part two, until we see Jesus. We don't see how Psalm 8 can possibly be true until we see Jesus. Let's read our verses again, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love, we'll get to this in a second. I love that he says, somebody wrote this down sometime. I can't remember exactly when. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a, a little lower, or for a little while lower than the angels. You have, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It's interesting that when he quotes Psalm 8, he opens it with, it has been testified somewhere. Somebody once said, that's weird, right? I mean, because if you study the book of Hebrews, you realize the author of Hebrews is brilliant. He didn't forget David's name. He he knows who David is. He knows David wrote this. So why is he saying it's been testified somewhere? Because he wants us to remember, and he wants to emphasize, it doesn't matter who the human author is. What matters is that the Old Testament, is that the book of Psalms, Psalm 8, is the Word of God. The Psalms are the Word of God. So when the author of Hebrews reads Psalm 8, he has no problem using it as supports for his argument because because he knows that it is the true Word of God. But how can it be true? Well, in order to see that it is true, you must see Jesus which is how he continues now. In verse 8, he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing else at his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So Psalm 8 says, humanity is gonna, mankind is going to rule and reign over everything. We're not seeing it yet. Verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Who are we looking at? Jesus of Nazareth crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. How is it that, how is it that everything is under man's control? How is it that God has left nothing outside man's control? Well, you have to look at the right man. You have to look at the right man. Psalm 8 makes no sense unless, unless you look at the right man. You can't look at Adam. You can't look at the nation of Israel. You can't look at Abraham or Moses or David. For sure, you can't look at me or you. You have to look at Jesus. You have to see Jesus. And then you see what Psalm 8, 
was ultimately talking about all along. That phrase, made a little lower than the angels in Psalm 8, that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That, that little phrase found its fullness in Jesus Christ. It's ultimately about Him. He is the human that none of us ever could be. Because He is also completely God, He is the, he is the human that none of us could ever be. None of us wanted to be. He is the human that Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and Israel and you and I should have been. He is, in a word, obedient. And since He is the obedient God-man, He is the man who has been crowned with glory and honor. We must remember, again, together, what did it mean for Jesus to be obedient? What did obedience mean? Verse 9 again, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, listen to this phrase, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You, you and I and Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve could have been clothed with glory and honor if we would have simply obeyed if we would have simply been content with being God's vice-regents, if we would have been content with ruling over His creation the way He commanded us to rule over it, within the parameters that He gave to us. But we wanted to rule over Him as well. So our glory and our honor has rightfully been ripped away from us, and we are left naked and ashamed, and we are sentenced to death. If we had not sinned, you and I and Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve would be sitting pretty right now. Enjoying our reign over creation and living forever. No pain, no death on the horizon whatsoever. But because of our sin, we have ruined everything. We have no mastery over anything and we are on our way to death. And if Jesus hadn't intervened, not only would we be on our way to death, but we'd be on our way to eternal judgment after our earthly death. Because of the sins that we have committed, we be on our way to hell. So what has Jesus done? He has tasted death for us. He has tasted death for us. Tasted sounds like he, he just had a little sip of death, right? He took a sip and then... then no, that's not what the, Hebrew, or the Greek word there means. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. Not at all. The word tasted there has the idea of experiencing the fullness of it. The full reality of death. It's, it's tied to the idea of drinking the cup of suffering and wrath that we deserved. The, 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 the idea of the, of the cup that Jesus prayed, please, please let this pass from me. When He was in the garden, before, before He went to the cross, He started to, he started to have this this full human realization of what the wrath of God was going to be like, the wrath that we deserved. He says, Is there, if there's any way, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, let your will be done. That cup that Jesus drank dry on the cross. Jesus took the fullness of the death we deserve. And in doing so, He paid for our sins. Now, now think about this with me. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times. Maybe this is the first time you've heard it. Either way, think about this with me. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's, Let's go back to Genesis 1. 
Who is this Jesus? He himself is the one who crafted the entire universe with a He Himself is the one who holds the thing together and is carrying it along to its its right conclusion. To the end that He has determined. He Himself is the one who formed humankind from the dust of the ground. And then He Himself, in Genesis, clothed us with, with glory and honor. And He gave us dominion over the creation that He had crafted. humans do? And what have we been doing ever since? We, we shook our fist at Him. We demanded more. We demanded to be His King. And we've been demanding that very thing ever since. And we've been foolishly shaking our puny little fists all the way to hell. And so what has Jesus done? He Himself humbled Himself. He Himself made Himself for a little while lower than the angels so that He Himself could save us. He made purification for our sins. And then His Father raised Him from the dead and gave Him the throne and gave Him the name that is above every name. His Father clothed Him with glory and honor because He tasted death for us. And so now we, if we are in Christ if we, by the grace of God, have believed the good news, then I want you to think about this with me. One of the most astounding truths amongst all of the astounding truths is this. Jesus shares with us. If we are in Christ, then we share in His rule and reign. He clothes us in robes that only He deserves. And one one day, this will be abundantly clear to everyone everywhere that Jesus has been the truly obedient human that every human should have been. And so now He is ruling and reigning and clothed in glory and honor. And in His absurd kindness, He has brought us in and He's given us the future that only He deserves. So now, before that day comes before it becomes obvious to everyone everywhere, let's commit ourselves to seeing Jesus, to opening His Word and beholding Him there. We are going to be tempted to shake our puny little fist at the One who made us. And we're going to be tempted to demand to be His King, to demand to have our own way. Let's see Jesus. Let's see the One who tasted death for us. When we are tempted to despair, because of the sin and death that is everywhere. Let's see Jesus. Let's see the One who tasted death for us. We are tempted to believe that Psalm 8 can't possibly be true. Let's turn to the One who the psalmist was ultimately talking about. Let's see Jesus. The God of the universe, who, instead of letting us sin our way to hell, became man made Himself a little lower than the angels so that He might taste death on our behalf and bring us to glory. The glory that only He deserves. See Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the book of Hebrews. It is rich. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the gospel of your Son, and then we don't deserve 
you and your kindness giving us this feast in this book to dwell in every week, to be thankful for every week, to, to stir our hearts for Jesus every week. This is grace upon grace. We thank you for it. I pray that you would, if there's anyone here who's never believed the gospel, if, if, if there's someone here who thinks that they can kind of just be their own king, do what they want to do, and it'll be fine, they don't need Jesus, I pray that you would convict them, that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do, that you would convict them of their sin and their rebellion, help them to see that Christ alone their only hope to be saved from their sins. And then for those of you who, for those of us who, who you have done this kind work in our hearts, help us, God, when we, when we are tempted, because we are silly. We are silly, forgetful, just, just silly little people. And we, 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 I, I, God, at least, I don't need to admit this, but I do. I demand my own way far too often. I pray that for those of us who could say the same thing, that you will forgive us, that you will comfort us with your gospel grace, and that when we are tempted next time, to shake our puny little fists at you, that you will help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ in your holy word, to see that he has tasted death for us in order to bring us and many other children to glory. We look forward to next week when we can feast on the words, bring many sons to glory. And way more than that, we look forward to when Jesus in his kindness does bring his children to glory. He is not the king we need. He is the king. He is not the king we deserve. He is the king we need. And even when we refuse to believe it, he in his kindness came and tasted death for us. Help us to be so thankful for that that we're glad to serve him with whatever time you give us on earth. Help us, God, in Christ's name. Amen.